You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Uh, I don't know about you, but it is hard for me to believe that that December, uh, you know, has officially arrived. Christmas is sort of around the corner at this point. So here's what we're going to do uh, for the next couple of weeks uh, in December. We're going to consider Christmas. Uh, the incarnation of Jesus. It is like one of those huge, massive truths that we get to celebrate as Christians, that God has left heaven. He came down upon this earth and he walked among us to rescue us. We're going to consider those things, Christmas. And then we're going to ask this question uh, each week after we kind of meditate on and consider sort of a thread that's linked to the incarnation of Jesus. Uh, then we're going to ask this question. What, what kind of a Christian does Christmas make? So, so here's Christmas, let's think about that, the incarnation of Christ, and then allow that to begin to shape us. What kind of a Christian does Christmas make? So that's where we're going today, that's where we're going for the next couple of weeks. So let's start with Christmas, and to kind of think through the incarnation of Jesus and one of the threads associated with it, I wanna to go to a very familiar passage. John chapter three, verse 16. That's where we read these, just such life-giving words. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now I just want to take that that phrase, that very familiar verse, and I just want to sort of take that phrase by phrase. So let's just start with the first two words. For God. Now, this verse has an actor, right? It's, it's got a subject. For God. It's got an actor. Someone is doing something in the verse, and that someone is God, the king and creator of the universe, the ruler of the universe. That God is on the move. Now, what is that God doing? For God so loved the world. You might underline that word, so. And uh, beside that word, so, you might just uh, put a little equal mark uh, and put intensity uh, beside it. That word, so, is the first word in the Greek uh, version of that verse. So in Greek, so is word number one. And, it, and it's at the front of the verse. It's, it's in that first position in the verse as a way of emphasizing it, as a way of bringing intensity to it. So it's not just that God um, kind of loved. It's not just that he sort of loved. No, it's that God so loved the world. It's, it's bringing that sort of emphasis and intensity. God so loved. That's the word so. And then you might underline that word world. If so is all about intensity, um, that word world is all about the size and the scope of God's love. See, when I read John 3.16, I'm expecting it to say something like this. For God so loved the lovable. For God so loved the pretty. For God so loved the put together, the strong, the, the pure, the, the moral. But that's not what it says, is it? No, it's for God so loved the world. That means that God loves the broken and the beaten. That means that God loves the abused and the abuser that God loves the oppressed and the oppressor, that God loves the rebel, the sinner, the failure, the weak, the needy, the frail. God loves the, the one who feels worthless. That's the one God loves. 
And that's who God so loved because that's all this world has. People like you and me, right? The the frail, the weak, the needy, that's all this world has. For God so loved the world that he gave. This is what the love of God does. It gives. That he gave. This is what the love of God looks like in action, in response to our rebellion, our sin, our weakness, our frailty. God, in just a, a moment of unmatched generosity, God gives. We have a generous God, don't we? You have never met a being more generous than God. God gives. And what did God give? Well, it shows us here. For God so loved the world that he gave his only what? Son. He gave his only son. God gave, maybe we can say it this way, God gave his best. God gave what is most prized, what is most precious. See, you didn't, when we, when we encounter God, we're not just encountering the most generous being in the universe. We are encountering the most generous being in the universe who has given his very best, what is most prized, what is most precious to him. There is nothing in the universe worth more than Jesus. Uh, nothing that is worth more than Jesus. And that is the very thing that God gave. Now think about how John describes Jesus. Uh, John describes Jesus as God in the flesh. That's chapter one. Uh, he describes Jesus as the bread of life. In John six, uh, Jesus says, if, if you'll come and eat of me and drink of me, you'll never be thirsty. You'll never hunger again. He describes Jesus as the good shepherd who, who opens up the door of life. Right? And, he, and he gives life and life to the full in John chapter 10. In John 11, he describes Jesus as the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, though you die, you're going to live again. Right? He's describing Jesus in all of these ways so that when we come to John 3.16, we can know that when God gives his son, he is giving his very best to us. And I think this is a good moment just to, to be reminded that if we have Jesus... We have enough. Because if we have Jesus, friends, we have everything. We we have God's very best gift if we have the person of Jesus. God has given you his very best. He's given you the one who can satisfy the deepest ache of your soul. He's given you the one that can reconcile you to God. He's given you the one who secures for you this incredibly bright future that's in front of you. He's given you Jesus, his very best. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, th- this verse, John three sixteen, 16, um, it has a way of just showing us the only two options for forever. And there's only two. Uh, option one is what this text calls eternal life. Through Jesus, God opens the door for hell-deserving sinners to experience life with him forever. That's eternal life, life with God, the one we were made for in the place that we were made for forever. That's eternal life. That's one option, but but here's the other option. You see it in that word perish. That word perish is the opposite of eternal life. It's eternal death, right? It's it's talking about that eternal death, hell that hell-deserving sinners will receive forever, 
right? Those are the two options. It's either eternal life or it's eternal death. And then this verse shows us the hinge. How do we go from eternal death forever to eternal life with God forever? How how do we do that? Whosoever believes in him, that is the inclusive nature of the generosity of God. Whosoever believes in him, it's open to all. I love how my friend Ray Ortland summarizes the good news of Jesus. He says it this way. Uh, Part one, we're all idiots. That's the humbling part, right? Uh, Part two, we have an incredibly bright future in Jesus. And then part three, anyone can get in on this. And that anyone can get in on this is, in a lot of ways, it's an expression of that little phrase, whosoever in John 3.16. Anyone can get in on this. You can get in on this. As a matter of fact, don't miss this. This is the greatest thing ever. Do not miss this. Whosoever. That word whosoever is just reminding us that God is looking at the world and he is saying, here's the deal I'm willing to make with you. Would you be humble enough to, to make this deal? Would you open up your hands and allow me to take your sin from you? Would you let me do that? Everywhere you have blown it, fallen, stumbled, would you be humble enough to let me take your sin? And for everyone who says yes to Jesus, uh, Jesus looks back and says, okay, now here's the second part of the deal. It gets even better. For, For everyone who will let me take your sin from you, would you be so humble enough to now let me put my perfect record of righteousness into your hands? Would you, would you be humble enough to receive from me my perfect life? So now when God the Father looks at you, he doesn't see your sin, but he sees my perfect record of righteousness. Would you be so humble as to receive that? Whosoever believes in him. One of the things I love about John 3.16 is it simplifies everything for everyone. It's either eternal life forever or eternal death forever. And it all hinges on what we do with the person of Jesus, God's great gift to us, God's generous gift to us. So before we move on, have you trusted in Jesus? Have you made that deal? Friend, it is either eternal life, eternal death forever. And maybe the Lord brought you here today just to, to get you thinking about more than the next three minutes of your life, to get you thinking about forever. And everything hinges on what you do with Jesus. Has there been a moment where you have pushed your life across that line, made that decisive step toward him, trusting him, opening up your hands, allowing Jesus to take your sin and to give you his perfect record of righteousness? Has there been a moment where you've just looked up to God and said, I am trusting Jesus, would you save me? If not, right now is your moment. Right there where you are, you can call out to the Lord and he would love to rescue and redeem you right now in this moment. Whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. There's Christmas. For God so loved the world that he gave. That's Christmas. Now I want to make the turn and ask the question, what kind of a Christian does Christmas make? What does that do to us? The fact that that God has loved the world and and how he has loved the world is by giving to it. 
By, by opening up his heart and his generosity just, just flowing out of his heart and into this world. What kind of a Christian does that make? And here's the simple way we could say it. The generosity of God creates a generous people. Or we could say it this way. God gave, so God's people give. That, that's what Christmas does to us. That the giving heart of God comes down into his people and creates generosity in them. Or we could say it this way. If John 3.16 is Christmas, then 2 Corinthians 9, 6-8 is what Christmas does to a Christian. It's the sort of life it produces in a Christian. So uh, go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians 9. And let me just give you some, some context on 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Uh, those two chapters together form the longest sustained teaching in the Bible uh, about generosity. And I would just encourage you, this would be a great week for you just to spend a little bit of time in those two chapters. Uh, the longest sustained teaching in the Bible about generosity. Now in these two chapters, Paul is urging this particular church, the church in Corinth, and, and through that church, us today uh, in Midlothian, he's urging the church toward generosity, sacrificial generosity, like that, that type of generosity that goes down into our lives in a way that it actually hurts. It, it actually feels costly to us. That's the sort of generosity he is moving this church toward. And he clarifies the motive in 2 Corinthians 8. What is, the, what is the motive for that type of generosity? What is the enabling power of that type of generosity? And Paul's answer is essentially Christmas. That's the answer. That's what motivates this generosity in the life of God's people. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Paul says, Jesus, who was rich, so he's in heaven, rich, has everything. Jesus, who was rich, made himself poor. He left heaven. He came down to earth. He walked among us. Uh, why? So that you who were poor could become rich. God's generosity unlocks our generosity. God gave, so God's people give. Uh, then you get to, to chapter nine and Paul begins to land the plane. And that's where you pick it up in verse six. Paul says, the point is this. Hey, here's what I'm trying to say, kind of summarize in a, in a quick way. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And then look at verse eight. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So I, I want to just point out, there's more than four, but I want to point out four things we learn about Christian generosity, about the type of generosity that, that Christmas creates in a Christian's heart. Four things we learn from this text about generosity. Number one, we learn that Christians give that Christians give. Uh, look at verse seven, the first four words. Each one must give. Each one must give. Christians give. Generosity is like a reflex in a redeemed heart. It's just what happens when a heart has been redeemed by God, when a, when a heart has encountered the generosity of God, when we have felt the generosity of God deep down in our bones, it unlocks generosity. I love how Randy Alcorn talks about this. He says that uh, where the lightning of grace strikes, 
the thunder of generosity follows. So he's just making the connection. Here's, here's lightning and thunder. These two things go together. When you get one, you get the other. And he's saying in the same way, grace and generosity go together. When you've got the grace of God at work in a person's life, when a person has experienced God's generosity, then they become generous. When the lightning of grace strikes, the thunder of generosity is sure to follow. Christians are generous people. We're not generous because it's through our generosity that we're saved. No, we're generous because God's generous heart is now beating in us. Uh, The generosity of God has been felt and experienced by us in a way where it has opened up our hands and made us a generous people. Now, when you think about the play out of generosity and how giving works, it's multifaceted in our life. It comes in many different areas. It comes with our time. Time is a precious commodity, and because it's precious, we are prone to hoard our time, to pile it up and try to protect our time. No one's going to get this. I'm going to protect this. I'm going to, we're prone to see time that way. But Christmas makes Christians different. It makes us generous with our time, ready to give our time to Jesus and to other people. Giving comes with talents. Right? The, the ways that God has gifted you and, and made you and uh, the talents and the skills that he has given you. Uh, we have a way of, of seeing our life as we're going to hoard these things. I'm going to keep them to myself. I, I'm just going to be the one who sort of benefits from these things. And God is saying, no, I, I have given you these things so that you could give them back to me in service of me and other people. Our time, our talents. And then thirdly, our treasure. And this is what Paul is getting at specifically in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, our money and possessions. What you have has been entrusted to you by Jesus. And I think it's just a good thing to remember that every dollar you have, every cent in your bank account, every cent in an investment, every dollar you have in equity in whatever you've got, every bit of that, are things that God has entrusted to you. In other words, you don't own any of those things. Just good to remind us that, that I am not an owner of anything in my life, right? God has entrusted those to me, and now I get to play the role of steward. That They are God's. He's entrusted them to me, so I get to steward them. I get to, to be open-handed with these things, giving them generously back to God and other people. We are owners of nothing, stewards of everything. And you know, it's amazing for me to look back over Stonegate's uh, history and see how generous people have been with their time. We wouldn't be here, like in this context right now, apart from people being so generous with their time, with their talents, with the way God has made them and wired them. We would not be here today. You would not be sitting right here today. I would not be right here today apart from hundreds and hundreds of people around Stonegate being so generous with the talents that God has entrusted to them and with with treasure, with, with the money and possessions. The story of Stonegate is just marked by hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people opening up their heart to Jesus and our church family being so generous. That's the only reason we're here. God God has been at work in this church family like that. So this is that moment where we just need to stop. And in light of Christians give time, talents, treasure, 
how is generosity working in your life right now? Uh, let's just take money and possessions. The people who know you, like know you best, would they look at you and say, you are living a generous life toward God and toward others. You, you're being open-handed. You are not trying just to sort of pile your stuff up and protect it. No, you are opening up your hands and saying, God, what is it that you want? I, I want to be on the front line leaning into generosity. Is that the way people would describe you? Has, has the giving of God in the person of Jesus begun to open up your life and heart so that you can be generous back to God and other people? Christians give. Here's the second thing we learn in this text about Christian giving is that Christians cannot outgive God. Christians cannot outgive God. Look at verse six again. I love verse six. He says, the point is this. So this is Paul saying, let me just give you a summary statement of what I've been trying to tell you. The point is this. And then he's gonna use a gardening or a farming metaphor. He says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And then on the other hand, whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now, those are the two options for your life. There's not like in between. It's one of these two options. Option one is we can hoard and hold on to what God has given us. In the metaphor, this is what it means to sow sparingly. We're going to be greedy. We're going to sort of draw a line around our stuff, circle that stuff up, figure out how to protect that stuff, make sure nobody else gets into any of that stuff. But we're going to kind of live that way. We're going to sow sparingly. And if you do that, Paul says, here's going to be the end result. You are going to reap sparingly. That, that, that's, the end, that's the end of that sort of a way of living, he's saying. Now, here's the other option. He says option two is we can open up our hands and we can give generously. We, we can just make our life one of generosity, to give generously. Now, in the metaphor, that's what it means to sow bountifully. So, so we can live that way, just with an open heart and open hand in our life, ready to give whatever Jesus says, let's do it. Right? Just, we're going to live like that. We're going to sow bountifully. And if we do, Paul is saying, you will reap bountifully. So sow sparingly, reap sparingly. Sow bountifully, reap bountifully. Now, again, just think about what Paul is doing here. Paul is urging this church to give generously, to give sacrificially all the way down into the moments where it actually hurts, where it begins to cost you in your life. That's what Paul is, is moving this church toward. And to move them toward that, he's saying, can, can I just remind you, church, you cannot outgive God. If you sow bountifully, you're gonna reap bountifully. You cannot outgive God. Now, this is one of those places in the Bible where you've got to just stop and ask yourself the question, do I believe that? Do I believe that's true? Can I, can I take God at his word believing that is true? I mean, you can ask yourself that question. Do I, do I believe that? Do I believe that if I sow sparingly, I'm going to reap sparingly? But on the other hand, if I sow bountifully, if I give generously, that I'm going to reap bountifully. And if I'm honest, there's a lot of times where I just see it differently. Where in my mind, if I sow sparingly, then I'm going to reap bountifully. And if I, if I sow bountifully, then I'm going to reap sparingly. I just have a way of seeing it like that so often. And Paul is pulling us out of that wrong way of thinking. Now, I want to be clear here that 
you know, I do think prosperity preachers are likely to go to a passage like this and say something like this. If you just sow in $100 today, you're going to get $1,000 next week. You know, it's, it's something like that. The problem is that's a half truth. That, that's the problem with it. So I, I'm not necessarily saying that. I'm not necessarily saying if you, if you give $100 like to something now, next week, the Lord's going to do X. But here's what I would say about that. Many of you have that story where the Lord has gotten you to a place of costly, scary generosity and you've stepped into it. And then the Lord has, in a very immediate way, met you with, okay, now you're gonna reap bountifully. Right on the back end of that. That that is so many of your stories. So I'm not necessarily saying that, but I do wanna say that that is in this place. That that does happen a lot. But, But here's the main thing I think Paul is trying to say, and because Paul's saying it, I'm trying to convince you of this morning. The main thing Paul is trying to say is that, friends, God will more than make up for whatever you give. God will more than make up for it. If you give bountifully, God will more than make up for that. You are going to reap bountifully. Now for some, that might mean that God shows up in small ways now. He's gonna take you to that moment of faith and you're gonna say yes to him and then he's gonna meet you in a very immediate way uh, with some provision. So so that is going to be some of your story. But for others, that's not going to be the way it plays out. God's going to take you to that step of faith and and that immediate sort of response is not going to be there from from God because he's got a long-term response for you. You're going to step into the next life one day and God is going to blow your mind with his bountiful provision for you. Blow your mind with it. But I don't want you to miss Paul's point here. Paul is is looking at this church and he's reminding this church, when all accounts are settled, no one is going to look at God and say, God, here's a, you you totally ripped me off, man. I I gave X and you totally ripped me off. No one's going to say that. You're not going to stand in front of God one day and feel that. You're going to feel the exact opposite of that. You're going, to feel this, you're going to feel the weight of this verse when you stand before God one day with your generosity. If you sow bountifully, you will reap bountifully. And that bounty, I think it's so bright that most of us can't even get it in our mind of what God might, might mean in that. But he's saying, I, I want you to believe this church that you cannot outgive God. You, you cannot do it. If you sow sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly. If you sow bountifully, you're going to reap bountifully. You cannot outgive God. God will more than make up for every single cent that you give. Third thing we learn in this text, third thing, is that Christians give cheerfully. Cheerfully. Look at verse 7. Not reluctantly, he says, but cheerfully. So this alerts us to God is not after any kind of obedience, but a certain kind of obedience. And that certain kind of obedience is a glad-hearted obedience. Not begrudging, but a glad-hearted obedience. He wants you not to give reluctantly, right, or under compulsion, but to give cheerfully. Now, why can we as Christians give cheerfully? I want to give you just a couple of reasons why we can give cheerfully. Uh, One is just because God has given so graciously to us. So it it does open up just such a cheerfulness and a glad heartedness in our generosity. But let me give you a couple of other reasons. Uh, One is because uh, every time we give, we are glorifying God. Giving glorifies God. It, It is a way of saying to the world, God is worth more than money. 
God is worth more than that investment. God is worth more than that car. God is worth more than that pool. God is worth more than that house. God is worth more than everything. Jesus really is the most prized possession a person can have. Every time you give, you're reminding your heart of that and you're saying that to the world, that God really is the most valuable thing in the universe. Giving glorifies God in that way. Here's the second reason we can be cheerful is because giving is good for you. Here's another one of those verses where you just, after you read it, you have to stop and ask yourself the question, do I believe that or not? Is that true or is it not? In Acts chapter 20, verse 35, the scriptures tell us, it is more blessed to give than receive. Gosh, that could be so hard to believe sometimes. It is more blessed to give than receive. According to the Bible, the good life, both now, good life now and forever, the good life is the generous life. It is more blessed to give than receive. Both now and forever, the good life is the generous life. And gosh, there's just hundreds of ways you could illustrate this. Let me just give you this illustration from a girl named Riley. When Riley was 10 years old, she was shopping uh, for her dad online, doing some uh, Christmas shopping. And uh, she clicked on a link to an organization that was, uh, they were making these specifically designed bikes uh, for kids with disabilities. So these kiddos with disabilities could have a bike that they could ride. So it's that sort of a thing. She clicked on that organization, they're doing that thing. And when she saw those bikes and the difference they were making, her heart just blew up. And and she literally looks to her mom and says, I'm going to get one of these bikes for, for a kiddo for Christmas. I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna jump into that and I'm gonna do that. And her mom, uh, after she saw the price t- tag of the bikes, they were several thousand dollars a piece. Her mom uh, looks at her and gives her that bless your little heart sort of a moment. It's like, sweetheart, I, th- I love that you want to, but I think that's maybe a, a bit beyond your reach. And, uh, but little Riley was not deterred. She uh, crafted a letter and sent that out to a bunch of her uh, family, friends, uh, those sort of people. And then all of a sudden money started showing up. And as Christmas uh, got nearer, more and more money started showing up. And on Christmas day, Riley, with a little Santa hat on, delivered three bikes to three little girls. The first uh, bike was to Ava, who had spina bifida. Uh, The second one was to Jenny, who had cerebral uh, palsy. Uh, The fourth one was to, or the third one was to Rose, who uh, just had a rare genetic disorder that uh, was complicating her life in all sorts of ways. And then ultimately, Riley raised enough money to buy seven bikes for seven little girls. And when she dropped off that last bike, she looked up at her mom and said, Mom, this is the best Christmas I've ever had. Riley has lived into Acts 20.35. It is more blessed to give than receive. If her mom would have bought her a few thousand dollars worth of gifts on that Christmas morning, do you know what she would not have said? This is the best Christmas of my life. But because she started seeing other people giving generously to other people. Do you know what she can say that Christmas morning? This is the best one. Why? Because according to Jesus, according to the scriptures, the good life is the generous life. It is more blessed to give than receive. Church, when Jesus talks about generosity, 
It's not because he's looking at you and saying, what can I get from them? Man, I, I need some things from them. I'm gonna get some things from them. No, that's not Jesus' motive. When, when Jesus talks about generosity, he's looking at his people and saying, no, it's not because I want something from you. It's because I want something for you. When we talk about generosity at Stonegate, it's not because we want something from you. It's because we want something for you. We want more of Acts 20, 35 to show up in your life. It's more blessed to give than receive. See, one day we're all going to stand before Jesus. Now, just picture that day. Uh, who knows? It, it's tomorrow for some of us. It's a few years for the others of us. But, but one day we're going to be before Jesus. And, and on that day, I don't think any of us are going to look at our life and be like, you know what? We really blew it. Gosh, looking back, we totally made a mess of everything. We should have hoarded a lot more. No one's going to say that. No one. But you know what a lot of us are going to be saying on that day? Oh, God, I wish I'd have had the faith to be more generous. God, I wish I would have. It's good for you. According to the scriptures, the good life is the generous life. Third reason we can be cheerful is because it is good for God's mission. Giving is good for God's mission. God's mission requires money. You cannot read the New Testament without just sort of stumbling into that, that, that God's mission requires money. Uh, if you want to think about Romans, uh, the letter of Romans, Paul wrote a letter, 16 chapters to the church in Rome. Uh, I think a good way to think about that letter is it's a support letter. It, it's a, a letter raising money for the mission. Why? Because the mission requires money. Uh, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is in the Bible because Paul is raising money in the Corinthian church for the mission. Why? Because the mission requires money. Now, here's the interesting thing just to consider. God designed it that way. God is the one who made it that way. Mission and money go together. Now, why would God have done that? Why did God design money and mission to go together? Why is that? Answer, because your heart follows your money. Your heart follows money. So the way that you save, if you're saving a lot, it's going to do something to you. The way that you spend, it's going to do something to you. The way that you give, all of those things that you're doing, how you're interacting with money is affecting your affections. It's shaping your affections. It's shaping what you love. Your, your heart follows your money. This is the way Jesus says it in Matthew 6, 21. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He's just saying the way you're interacting with money is forming your heart. And the reason I design mission and money to go together is because I want you to love the mission. I want your heart to be sunk into the mission. If you want to love your church more, give more to your church. If you want to love adoption and fostering more, give more to fostering and adoption. If you want to love reaching the unreached, give more to reaching the unreached. If you want to love church planting more, give to church planting more because your heart is going to follow in that way. This is the reason money and mission go together, right? So, so here's how we, why we can gladly give because every time we give, we are furthering the mission and not only are we furthering the mission, we are sinking our hearts deeper into God's mission in the world. So we can gladly give. And here's the last thing. It's not just that Christians give. It's not just that Christians cannot outgive God. It's not just that Christians give cheerfully. Lastly, Christians give in light of God's promises. I love verse 8. It's one of those verses that we should all memorize. Here's verse 8. And God is able to make 
all grace. I, I just love the word all as it shows up over and over in this text. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. For so many of us, here is um, how generosity gets jammed up in our life. We have a way of thinking like this. God has given me a little bit of grace. And grace in this text is money and possessions. It's, it's most directly considering that. So, so God has given me a, a little bit of grace. And because it's just a little bit, what I need to do is, is protect that little bit of grace, that little bit of money and possessions. I, I need to, to, to draw a, a, a line around it, build a fence around it, make sure nothing happens to this thing. Because if I get too crazy with this little bit of grace, I'm not going to have any grace left. If I, if I start to give in too crazy of a way, all of my little pile of grace is going to be gone. It's, it's a way of seeing the world and seeing God through a scarcity mentality. That, that, that's what Paul is pushing against and fighting against here. And, and that scarcity mentality so often jams up our generosity. You can just look at it in your own life and, and, and ask yourself the question, do I see that scarcity in me? If I, if I give too crazy here, man, what am I going to do tomorrow? What am I going to do next year? What am I going to do 10 years, 20 years down the road? Can you find that in you? I, I can find it in me. That voice is alive in me. And Paul is saying, that voice in you, that scarcity mentality, that, that voice of scarcity, it is telling you a lie. It is preaching a false gospel to you. Paul's looking at us in this text and saying, this is not the way God operates. Here's the way God operates. God does this little miracle and he gives us this little pile of grace. And then a Christian looks at that little pile of grace and says, it's not to be protected or hoarded, it's to be given. It, it, we're to be open-handed with this little pile of grace. And, and then a Christian gives out of that little pile of grace. And then God does this amazing thing. God restores the grace. And then a Christian looks at the restored grace and is like, okay, I, I'm gonna give even more. And then God looks at the little pile of grace that's left and, and God resupplies again. And then the Christian looks at that and says, I'm gonna give even more. And then God resupplies and the Christian says, I'm gonna give even more. Friends, that is the life that God is inviting you into, that, that Paul is pulling the Corinthian church into. And it's a promise like this that's meant to take you there. That God would look at you and say, I'm going to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. It translated every good work of generosity. You may abound in that. You're going to have plenty of grace for all of that. This is a promise where God is just reminding us that I'll keep resupplying. I'll keep restocking as you keep giving generously. Maybe you could think of it, uh, picture it this way. God's grace is like a deeply dug well in your life. And that well goes down. It, it's got untold resources below it. More resources than you'll ever be able to use in your life. All, all those resources are below you. And every time you give, it's like you are cranking the pump on the well and, and you are bringing up more grace. You give another pump more grace. Every time you're giving, you're just restocking the very supply that you need to give more. That's what Paul is encouraging you with. 
That's how he's encouraging us to get out of that scarcity mindset so we can actually walk by faith in Jesus. As you give, more grace will come. So church, can we allow this promise to have its effect on us? Can we allow Christmas to make us a certain kind of Christian, a generous one, open-handed with everything that God has entrusted to us? Why don't you bow with me? I want to give you just a moment to allow the Spirit of God to press into you what would be most helpful, to wipe away the things that wouldn't be. And first, we just need to ask that question. Have we received the generous gift of God, Jesus? Has that happened? Have you received Jesus? If not, this is your moment. This is your moment to take that decisive step toward him. So there where you are, you can call out to God and just tell him, here's my life, oh God. I am trusting in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Save me. And he would stand so ready and so willing to do that. Don't leave here apart from receiving that gift. And then we can ask ourselves the question, are we being generous? We are coming to the end of, of 2022. And this is a good time for you to be able to look back over your life with what God has entrusted to you, the money and possessions that he has, he has piled up in your life, and then to ask, am I being generous with that? Is generosity one of those sort of marks in my life? And if so, then you can look back and celebrate that. If not, you got time to fix that this year to take that step toward Jesus this year. So God, would you help us? God, would you make this church family a generous church family? It's in your good name that we ask it.